You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Most of you have met her, but perhaps know her by different names. Uh, perhaps she is your neighbor, classmate, coworker, or maybe even sibling. She is tall, athletic, never seems to have a bad hair day. Her skin is smooth, her teeth are white and straight, her lips are full. She's educated with, if not one, many, many degrees. Her memberships include the local premier fitness club. Her subscriptions include Cosmopolitan, Vogue, and Shape magazine. Her apartment, if not home, is stylish. Her clothing is head-turning, and her cooking is magazine-worthy. She loves her puppy. She is due to head to New York this summer for a quick shopping trip with friends. She is the envy of all other women And the closest they can get to being to her is to pose for a selfie with her and then post it on their Instagram account with the hashtag that reads, hashtag besties. Unfortunately, this fictitious woman is the hero for today's young ladies and the arch enemy for many of today's wives. But this is the woman that's often put before the women of this world. She's carefully photoshopped and always smiling. She walks with such grace down the sidewalk, in our mind at least, that it's like she's a model posing on a Paris runway. She's always styling and profiling. And we watch her. And as we see her, Satan whispers in your ear. And Satan says something like, you should be like her. Do everything you can. Sacrifice all you have to be like her. You will never be complete. You'll never be full. You'll never know fulfillment or happiness unless you can match your life like hers. In another moment, Satan is whispering, you'll actually never be like her. Your body is not good enough. Your smile is not nice enough. Your hips are not right enough. You are not smart enough. You are not fill in the blank. Ladies, I want to speak to you today about this topic. To some of you, I address this as your fellow brother. For others of you, I speak to you more like a father in the faith. But for all of you, I want to talk to you as your pastor. Now, as I said at the outset, I recognize the liability of this message coming from a man. After all, the title of the talk is Biblical Womanhood, Am I Being Sexist? And it would seem as if the irony, of course, is that if a man teaches it, well, then sexism is due to creep in, knowingly or not. I also recognize it might be easier to hear it from a woman who you feel like is connected to the topic. She can indeed, in the spirit of solidarity, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice in the sense of a shared struggle. However, 
my hope, as you'll see this morning, is that the authority is from the Bible, and I do feel pastorally responsible for you, regardless of gender. Men sitting here, women sitting here, it is without gender distinction as to the responsibility that pastors have for their people in their church. So this morning, the topic is that of biblical womanhood. And the purpose of the time together is to cover some lessons. And if you're taking notes, I'll sort of outline, this for this for you, outline these for you. First of all, who your God is. Secondly, who you are. And thirdly, what are you called to be? Now, this might sound easy or assumed, but if these points are overlooked, then I can assure you in time, something will fall apart and you will find yourself either bitter or doubting that what you are doing is right or questions that care come up or you will doubt the goodness of God and his provision for you. So for our first part of this morning, I want to talk to you about the biblical woman who knows who her God is. And to do that, turn to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, we're going to be in three primary texts this morning, just to give you a sneak peek. Psalm 116 will be in Genesis, we're going to be in 1 Timothy, as these serve as bookmarks for this larger conversation about biblical womanhood. Now, You'll turn with me to Psalm 116. I'm going to read the psalm to us, and I just want you to listen as I guide us through this, starting in verse 1. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. What's the response of the worshiper in verses 1 through 7? We'll look down to verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his peoples. Now, right now, ladies, you might be thinking, I, I thought you had said that this was going to be a, a topic on biblical womanhood, and it's my understanding that the psalmist, though, does not identify who they are, many of the psalms being written by David, others being written by other people, it's my understanding that this psalm doesn't necessarily particularly apply to from a woman to women. And therein lies the fallacy that I think can start us off in the wrong direction if we do not correct it, which is if we come to the Bible and only kind of take a concordance approach to like, what is the topic at hand, and based on the verses applying that topic, I will then study that to learn more. That is one of the most common fallacies to really disorient ourselves and to malign our understanding of God and his role for us. For example, if I talk about the topic of marriage, 
What does the Bible say about marriage? How do I know I'm going to have a good marriage? What should I do in my marriage? And we only go to the passages that address marriage. We have left out a lion's share of passages that make for a godly marriage because so often the problem is not in the role as far as the arena in which we're living. It's actually who we are and where we bring that no matter the arena. So when I come to the topic of biblical womanhood, the reason I want to frame this as I have given to you here in point one is that the biblical woman knows who her God is, not unique to biblical manhood, but common to that as well. So ladies, just listen to me for a second here as you, as you consider this. As you think about this text I've just read to you, this person who fears God knows several things. You go back to the text and look at it, verse 116. He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Do you, do you think God hears you? Verse five, gracious is the Lord. Do, do you think he is gracious? Righteous, do you think he's righteous? Our God is merciful. Do you think he is compassionate or merciful? Verse six, he preserves the simple. Do you think he cares about you when you're being brought low? Verse seven, return on my soul to your rest for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. See, ladies, I want to just be very clear here. Part of the richness of what we're reading is in the reality that God has created you and has provided for you, not in past tense, but in a present, ongoing reality that you live in light of that. So in other words, part of you recognizing who you are is to recognize first and foremost who God is and living in light of that reality. Do you see your life as a gift? Do you know that God is gracious with you? You do not preserve what you have now. Do you, do you know that God is compassionate with you? Do you see yourself as being, being dealt bountifully with you? So let me just be clear, for example, by way of application. Do, do you sometimes feel bitter against God that either A, you are not married and you wish you were because other friends of yours are married? And it seems unjust of God that he would give those women husbands and not you. Because quite honestly, and you mean this humbly, you kind of feel like better than them, if you can say that, deserving than what, what they don't have, what you don't have, yet they have. Or perhaps you actually have a husband, and as you've gotten into this marriage, you're kind of like, God, what were you thinking? Or maybe I should ask a more honest question. What is he thinking? And you find yourself being bitter against the providence of God and what he has not given you or what he has given you. The reality of this is what happens is you find your theology coming out and how you process relationships around you, especially as it applies to your role as a woman. Now, I'm not meaning to make light of difficult circumstances that some of you find yourself in. And I'm not meaning to sort of advocate in sort of like a rather insensitive way as a man speaking to women. Ladies, let's all get in for a huddle here. Come on, suck it up. Don't be bitter. Let's kind of just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. You can do that. Stop being a crybaby. As if it's that old movie of uh, Tom Hanks with him. He was coaching the, uh, the uh, what's the name of the movie? A League of Their Own. Thank you. And it's the, you know, a team of uh, female baseball players. And, 
you know, he's trying to figure out, what do I do with coaching these, these people? He's so used to guys kind of thing. I'm not trying to give like some sort of Tom Hanks speech in that moment. I'm instead recognizing the temptation for men and women, which is regardless of the season you're in, how you're processing it says a lot about what you actually think about God. Do you think he is deaf to you or do you think he hears you when you pray? Do you think he is delighting and withholding from you in some type of insensitive, unloving way or is he gracious and righteous and compassionate? Is he your savior or are you your savior by what you are accomplishing for yourself? Do you trust God's provision for your future? Or are you tempted like Sarah, married to Abram, who in Genesis Genesis 16 took matters into her own hands? Here's Hagar. God made a promise. He's rather delayed in providing for it. I will help God out. This is a temptation women fall into today when they believe God has called them to be married. God seems rather late in providing that spouse. So they start to wander into relationships that they should not have wandered into as a premature way that honestly looks more like Sarah in the Bible than any one of us want to look like. Or, like Eve, are you tempted like Eve to listen to the voice of someone other than God to get your instructions from. A woman that is in love with her God as she observes how God loves her is a woman that is prepared to be a true worshiper, a woman that will be the woman God has called her to be. So interestingly, one encouragement I would give to you as ladies is not to rush to some book on biblical womanhood, not rush to the concordance on anything regarding you know, biographical portraits of women in the Bible, all of which you're welcome to do, and I even have some recommendations on good books coming later. I'm talking about something much more basic and foundational that you build your life upon, which is actually spending some more time in the Word, reading the text, and say, what does this text teach me about God? It's a good Bible study habit to get into as you read the Bible, to ask yourself the question, what does this text show me or teach me about who God is? Too often today in our Bible study, we're running to personal application. What am I to do? What should I be thinking? What should I be saying? And that's, and I in some ways commend that, an idea like to not just be hear of the word, but to be a doer. James chapter one, verse 22. But slow your roll, ladies, and ask some fundamental questions about what is God's word teaching you? Perhaps spend some time this week in your Bible, studying over it, reading through it, knowing that he is not like your earthly father's. His character is sure, his promises are true, his word is life. Secondly, the biblical woman knows her identity. So I talked about how the biblical woman knows who her God is. Secondly, the biblical woman knows her identity. Now, I don't mean that you stare yourself in the mirror and say, hi there, I mean, what's your name? As if you're trying to like card yourself in the mirror. Or to sit in a quiet room and hum yourself into self-realization. I'm talking about getting clear on your identity. The problem that's so rampant today for ladies, and I say this, I say this, you know, sad and for you, is the hypersexualization of society, particularly for women. Particularly for women. 
And I, and I mean to say, particularly for women, not to exclude men. It's certainly true with men, and we can speak about that some other time. But the reality is, so commonly today, your personhood is defined by your representation of yourself, if not sexually, then in that kind of a low-grade, mild form of it, sensually. It needs to have accenting curves to it. It needs to have a sense of splash to it. Today's Western society is pulsating with sexuality, from the magazines and the racks at the stores, to the songs on our playlists, to the billboards on our roads, to the commercials on our televisions. Sex is everywhere. It sells, it sells cars, it sells boats, it sells music, it sells movies, it sells video games, it sells magazines, it sells books, it sells furniture, it sells food, it sells clothes. So much so that perhaps for many of you, you're thinking, what's even the point anymore? What's the point? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know what my role is here. I don't know what to do. Why, why do I even try to resist? If I, if I can't beat them, I should just sort of join them. Or perhaps you've not had that pointed out to you by mothers, by fathers, by older sisters in the faith. Or perhaps some of you as ladies who are married have thought, I might not think this way, but the problem is my husband does and I still feel defeated. The question for us to consider is, how do we live as Christians in this non-Christian, godless, pagan, sick, sinful, Satan-serving world? I hope you wrote all that down. Genesis gives us some direction here. Genesis is so foundational to so many beginning doctrines that are developed throughout the Scriptures it's the origin, not only the origin of humanity and its timeline of history, it's the origin of relationships, origin of nations, origin of languages, the origin of the promise of salvation. Genesis chapter 1, look with me at verse 22, God Bless them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 24. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. You see this repeating phrase, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. That's the context now of verse 26. Then God said, let us, interesting introduction there to what we'd later know, later know as the Trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In that single sentence, you have three references to the plurality of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we'd come to know them in the continuing revelation of Scripture. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, in this sort of overarching verse to describe both man and woman. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So seemingly the crowning jewel of the cadence of creation is what happens on day six. Because what he creates, who he creates on day six, has dominion over all of the creation of what's taken place in day one to five. This is exercise of divine delegation to exercise dominion over creation. But it starts not with responsibility. It starts first with identity. This takes us back to verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, admittedly, I'm going to develop this more in the next time that we're together in two weeks. So I'm going to touch on this briefly now, but I want to put it in the context of a display of womanhood to recognize the significance for not only men, but also women in the identity that they have. Now, let me say it to you like this. Ladies, let's start baseline. The fact that you are human, and I mean that not to be a biological statement, I just mean that to be a kind of a baseline of humanity, regardless of whether you're a Christian, the fact that you're human gives you immediate dignity and corresponding interrelational respect from each other because you are made in nothing less than the image of God. You are made in His likeness. Now, Part of the significance of being made in the likeness of God is not only in the sense of attributes as far as capacity of personality and dominion, it's also in the prerogative of what's been entrusted to you. So there is significant reality in how you have been given responsibility. God is not just making man and woman another profile of a long list of things in creation which is simply what kind of the evolutionary approach to humanity says, which is there's no distinctive difference in dignity. The tree is as equal in, in sort of uh, value and place in the larger existence of creation, though that word not being used as far as on the planet as the personhood, but that's actually not true. We see here by God is that it is only man and woman who have that corresponding likeness to God. So first of all is identity, and secondly is responsibility. Now, what I want you to recognize, ladies, is that responsibility is not first and foremost tied to your relationship to the man. And this is important to draw out here just by connection. Is it true that the first woman we're introduced to is created in, in, uh, from her husband, Adam, and is given a distinct role as a wife. That is definitely true. But I want you to understand the sort of order of creation and instruction that her identity is not tied to her relationship to a man. It's tied to her relationship to God. 
Now, this is not me trying to come in the back door and fuel modern-day feminist instincts. I don't need no man. I'm equal to man. Men are stupid. That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to do is help you recognize the order of revelation of the identity and the significance of personhood and responsibility is not first and foremost tied to any other person as it is tied to God. Why is this important? Because some of you as women think, until I have a boyfriend, at, you know, at least, and ideally a husband at best, I'm kind of a subcategory individual. If you have not heard my uh, four-part talk on study on singleness, we offered here at Grace Church, ironically in this very room, back in January, we have it available on our webpage and our YouTube channel. I recommend you go listen to that because that's one of the first things I try to do is sort of dispel the myth that you are not a complete person, man or woman, until you're in a relationship with some other man or woman. I say this because a lot of women today sit with like a low-grade trolling motor in the back of their head of discontentment slash grumbling slash complaining because of what they don't yet have, because they've so closely tied to their security and identity to that relationship to validate their personhood. And God is trying to politely raise his hand and say, have you, have you actually thought about what my word says about this relationship? Now, I'm not trying to be heard to overcorrect, to devalue the relationship between man and woman. In fact, just as a sidebar comment, I have found the other part to be true as well, and I said this in the marriage series, for those of you who are there for that, later in the month of May. One of the problems that comes up today for women and men who were once single, as intelligent as I am to have made that statement, and now married, is that they operate in marriage like they're still single, but now have shared assets, shared relational place, maybe shared offspring, but they don't actually understand and nor have shifted into differing roles that they have now as husband and wife that they understandably did not have as just man and woman before they were married to one another. And so it's not uncommon to find married couples who find themselves in quite areas of conflict in marriage, and sometimes it's because they're operating in ignorance at best or intensely rebellion at worst, that they don't want to fulfill their responsibility expressed in their area of wife or husband now that they're married. Bringing it back to our purposes for this sake this morning, for you to understand your identity is to recognize you are who you are because of how God has created you and has given you responsibility accordingly. Now, even more it's significant on top of that to like lay down that sort of baseline representation. If you are a Christian, and most of you, if not all of you here today, are indeed Christians. If you're a Christian, you're not only made in the image of God, but you are also a child of God. Which is like, you know, honestly, kind of like the ace card, the royal flush, the, the checkmate in any conversation. Because you're like, you can't get any better than that. It's like, you know, I've kind of made it to the top. There's no place to go but down from here. The significance of that is because of the confident relationship you have with God by access, by opportunity, 
to know that he loves you, he cares for you, he will not abandon you, he is always present with you as an expression of his commitment to his son, so he extends that to you because of your faith in his son for the forgiveness of your sins. The implications on this are huge, your identity, your security, your assurance, your relationships. It might be worth even just meditating this week as you think about who God is, also perhaps writing on a card some significant statements from God's word about who you are. Third is the biblical woman knows her calling. So she not only knows her, her God, she not only knows her identity, she also knows her calling. Uh, one resource I'm glad to recommend to you, this is an older copy. Uh, she has since gotten married herself. She was uh, single for a number of years, Nancy Lee DeMoss. Now uh, her name is Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. And uh, the, the table of contents alone are intriguing to kind of bait you into reading the book, if not jumping around to different parts of it, um, because she speaks about different categories that need to be understood. Lies women believe about God, about themselves, about sin, about priorities, about marriage, about children, about emotions, about circumstances. I highly recommend the work to you. I'll give you some examples of different lies uh, that you perhaps are tempted or other women are tempted to believe that God does not love you. He is just like your father. He is really not enough. His ways are too limiting. You're not worth anything. You need to learn to love yourself. You can't help the way that you are. You have your rights. Physical beauty matters more than godliness. You should not have to live with unfulfilled longings. Getting married young is a waste of your singleness and freedom. Having children, children is not worth ruining your body for. A career outside the home is more valuable and fulfilling than being a wife and or a mother. You have to have a husband to be happy. It is your responsibility to change your spouse. You will be miserable if you submit to your husband. If your husband is passive, you've got to take all the initiative or nothing will get done around there. Divorce is certainly a better option than staying in an unhappy marriage. If you feel something, then it must be true. You cannot control your emotions. You cannot help how you respond when your hormones are out of whack. If your circumstances were different, you would be different. You shouldn't have to suffer. Your circumstances will never change. And it, after all, in the end, is really all about you. These are the lies women are tempted to believe. You could say this as the garden conversation that the serpent had with Eve that continues today to whisper into the ears of the women in the world. Perhaps like you or those sitting around you, perhaps like your moms or your sisters or your friends. And as I said at the very outset of this time together, weeks ago when we began, I want you to listen to these lessons not only for what you can learn for yourself, but even if by God's grace you are in a good place in your walk with the Lord, and you kind of feel like these lessons are confirming what you already understand and believe, then I would say, still in a spirit of humility, listen so as that you might be able to help others think more carefully and biblically where they otherwise do not. Your calling is connected to your character in the season that God has you in. Your calling is not first in some role as it relates to some other relationship, as first and foremost, your calling is what it means to be a woman and the manifestation of that in the different seasons and the different situations and at times different personalities and um, relationships she's put you in. 
or God has put you in, rather. Womanhood is not modern or old-fashioned. It is not based on your career accomplishments or the number of children you have. I was helped reading Courtney Reisig and what she wrote on this, and I want to share it with you, ladies, of what she says. She says, we tend to define womanhood by the tasks, not the inherent qualities. Maybe you're always a bridesmaid, yet never a bride. Or maybe you have hosted your fair share of baby showers only to be reminded every month that none of those showers will ever be for you. If you are single or unable to have children, it often feels like you are in a holding pattern waiting for your life to begin. But the Bible presents a very different path for womanhood. She, con she continues, consider Sarah. She was barren, and even when she was finally able to conceive, she was old and only had one child. She spent the majority of her years childless. Yet, when we hear of her in the New Testament, we learn why she was considered a godly woman in 1 Peter 3. Peter praised her not because she gave birth, but because she hoped in God. Consider Eve. God created Eve in his image long before she gave birth. Her distinctiveness as a woman was rooted in the fact that she bore God's image, not that she could give birth to a child. The ultimate mark of womanhood is hoping in God, not giving birth or loving a husband, though these are beautiful and God-glorifying privileges. They are just not where we root our identity. Whenever you're tempted to question your value, always go back to the Bible. Do not listen to the internal voice sure to lead you astray. And then she finishes by saying, there is a tremendous encouragement for women who long to be wives and mothers. God declares us women created in his image, valuable in his economy, and given a great singular purpose to display his glory in our specific season. If we are infertile or unwillingly single, it is not the season we, should, we would choose, but it is ours, and it is a gift from God. In it, we can either flourish or wither. We can either hope in God or despise his provision. He has given us everything we need to bear good fruit in this season. We don't have to wait until we get married or have a sweet baby in our arms. Because of what Christ accomplished, we have everything we need for today. Our neighbors need grace. Orphans and neglected children need care. Women need mentoring. Husbands need encouragement. And your church needs a faithful member. It's a helpful word in the spirit of sort of Titus 2, an older woman speaking to other women. And to that end, let me show you an example as a case study. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been in Psalm 116. We've touched down in Genesis 1. Now, what I find interesting is in 1 Timothy is a backdoor way to teach on biblical womanhood to women on what seems like an unrelated topic. I was speaking recently to a uh, group of youth leaders at a youth camp. Uh, so these were not teenagers who were leaders. These were leaders of teenagers, whether they were pastors or they were parents or they were just uh, adult volunteers as small group leaders. 
And I uh, told them I, about the history of youth ministry in America and how it came to pass through parachurch ministries initially and then kind of made its way into the church and how it came about. And I said to them, you know, this might be a little disorienting to recognize, but the Bible has nothing to say specifically about youth ministry. It talks about youth. Um, we, we can see this in sort of different examples of youth. I said, just to sort of be even more provocative, the Bible says nothing about singles ministry or college ministry or says nothing really about married ministry. It talks about different demographics of people when, he, when Paul writes to the Ephesians or writes to the Colossians, sort of drawing out a few relationships. Hey, parents think about this. Hey, children think about this. But that's sort of targeted instruction by way of application. Today, as the larger the church gets, it cannot imagine having ministries without such subgroups. And I'm not saying those are inherently wrong, but I did want to point out to them, but yet there are seemingly groups of people in the Bible that do get repeated attention. Acts chapter 6, this brand new young church, rather large in the very beginning as so many conversions were taking place, their first conflict, which became a little bit of a racist issue because of the discrimination happening, was a benevolent issue related to ethnicity, which is Jewish and non-Jewish widows were not being provided for equally. And they brought the problem to the apostles and like, hey, we got favoritism already. So this has been a problem in the church from the very beginning. We see this in the book of Corinthians. And so you see there how they address that, sort of a pre-jackening kind of role there, what takes place. Well, this topic is repeated throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, which is making sure we care for widows and orphans. In fact, James talks about this. This is a pure and undefiled religion. Well, here you have Paul giving instruction to Timothy to reset a church that Paul planted, the church in Ephesus, that now has to be, to use modern day language, revitalized. And so he's telling his sort of, when his disciples, Timothy, what to do with the church in Ephesus. That's what 1 Timothy is about, how to go back years later and reset, not that long ago, about a decade before this church. He specifically wants them to address his issues of widows. The topic of widows is always significant in God's heart. And the reason I want to highlight it for you is because I want you, as I read this text to you, to read how this woman is being considered. How she is, and woman meaning generically, it's not a particular woman like Phoebe or others. It's a particular woman. He's talking about how the church should take care. And so you'll notice back in First Corinthians, I mean First Timothy chapter five, he's talking about older men and younger or older women. So just to give the context, look at First Timothy five verse one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And then we have this topic of widows coming about. Verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The idea here, just to understand, is like, hey, if a woman has family, the family should first be her primary provision of care for her before that issue is brought to the church. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
but she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. We already see these sort of two contrasting examples. A woman who has her hope on God continues in supplication and prayers versus one who is self-indulgent. She satisfies the desires of her flesh. Verse seven, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, this is back to the caring for your widow, if you have a relative, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than unbeliever. Verse nine, let a widow be enrolled, meaning cared for financially by the church, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. And then here's what she's sort of known for. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. This is kind of women getting caught up in gossip and meddling in other people's affairs. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And it goes on to speak in verse 17, following about now about elders in the church. Ladies, here is a phenomenal template, outline, curriculum to bring to the Lord in prayer, to bring to another woman in the faith who is maybe where you are in your walk with the Lord, or bring to an older woman in the faith who is by humble example, where you want to be one day in the Lord and say, hey, could you, could you just teach me these things? What, is it, what does it look like in my life to be a busybody? How could I get caught up in gossip? What does it look like to care for those in my family that I've maybe been neglecting? How, how have you identified ways in which you've been tempted to stray after Satan's lies? This is a phenomenal profile to really frame up what I think could be great conversations for women to have together and fulfilling not because of some other relationship, but because of first and foremost the relationship with God and how the Word of God objectively sets that in front of you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.